This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Thanks for joining us for Episode 46 of the Recorded Future podcast. The 2018 Olympic Games in Pyeongchang recently wrapped up, but not without attempts at disruption from cyber attackers. A major telecom and IT provider was targeted with a multi-pronged campaign to gather credentials, move laterally within networks, and destroy data. Greg Lesnowich is a threat intelligence analyst with Recorded Futures Insect Group, and he joins us to provide an overview of the malware campaign named Olympic Destroyer. We'll get technical details, as well as a sense for why attribution is notoriously difficult in cases like this, and whether or not we're seeing evidence of a false flag. Stay with us. Olympic Destroyer is a piece of malware that was observed initially by uh, our friends over at Talos, uh, and they did some analysis on it that got it onto our radar. It appeared to be a destructive malware that was used to uh, target the Olympic Games, IT, and that sort of infrastructure, especially ticketing systems we found, hmm. uh, to prevent people from getting into the opening ceremony, uh, things of that nature to sort of ruffle the feathers as much as they could in a physical event through cyber means. Uh, it's spread through WMI and PS exec vectors laterally through networks, so it was able to propagate itself rather quickly uh, and destroy data on the computers that it then infected. Can you dig into some of the technical details of here, what was going on under the hood? So when Talos initially reported on it, they found the destructive malware out in the wild, I believe. It was uploaded to virus total and i believe that that is how they got tipped off to it i remember that is how we got tipped off to it hmm. it initially acts as a dropper the files it drops include a browser credential stealer a system credential stealer uh so that it can propagate the network both the system credential stealer operated very similar to mimikatz uh which led to some code overlap ambiguity uh because Mimikatz was used in the Petya, not Petya, ransomware attacks earlier in 2017. And that sort of created this environment of, hey, there's code overlap, but it's using a really common tool, so can we actually call this code overlap? Additionally, there was a destructive portion of the malware that writes a bunch of files to the disk. It uses uh, command exe to delete all shadow copies from the using VSS admin, uh, and then goes through and erases... Uh, shadow copies. Uh, it disengages the uh, WB admin, uh, a tool used to recover individual files and folders so that way Windows recovery can't sort of pick up the pieces uh, and then goes through and disables a ton of services on the system and uses chain service config W API to further disable stuff. Something that sort of prompted our research into it, we had sort of observed from afar uh, and we have some customers that have interest or participation in the Olympic Games for a variety of reasons, whether they be nationalist and patriotic or they are providers in a small or large capacity. And so what we found was evidence of hard-coded credentials in the malware from a customer of ours hmm. that we then raised the alarm on to then go and investigate the malware further and say, well, we need to write this up for our customer to get this out before it gets released because there's a ton of other groups looking at the malware and we wanted to make sure that we let them know before we did anything. And so the, the thing that originally prompted our initial look at the malware was 
Intezer tweeted something out noting that they had found code overlap with two different Chinese APT groups, APT3 and APT10. APT3 is closely affiliated with the Chinese Ministry of State Security, and APT10 is allegedly known for its function with uh, cyber espionage activities attributed to Chinese actors. Hmm. And it was a super, super small amount of code overlap, and so that was sort of what prompted us to go and look at the malware initially. From there, uh, we found the hard-coded credentials of our client of ours, and that turned into a written piece that then turned into reporting on attribution practices. Mm. Uh, And so looking through our repository of malware and other things that we keep tabs on, we found code overlap uh, also with the Lazarus Group out of North Korea, which would sort of make sense given that, you know, the Olympics were held in Pyeongchang and it would make sense for the average person to think that North Korea was targeting the Olympic Games to disrupt them, even though their athletes were then invited. Additionally, I think that the findings of Chinese APT code inside of inside of the malware samples that we had access to was evidence pretty quick, especially to um, our lead analyst over here, that it was a false flag operation. Hmm. You know, there, there was sort of too much of a coincidence to have all of these different code overlaps with tools used by uh, the Chinese, the North Koreans, not Petya code overlap in the Mimikatz tool that was in the system credential stealing aspect of the malware. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of raised concerns for us of if we can't positively identify something, we shouldn't put something out there saying we attribute it to this because of a small amount of code overlap. And yet the the sort of having these different code, uh, I don't know, ducks in a row, if you will, uh, seemed a little too neat uh, for you to, to, I guess, take the bait when it came to attribution. Precisely. If every time we saw a little bit of code overlap, especially with all these tools that have now become public because of malware repositories and code sharing and, and source code leaking and all that sort of stuff, uh, it's now relatively easy to emulate an APT. We've seen that in the rollover from uh, the Vault 7 and Shadow Broker leaks that now traditional cyber criminals can use more advanced exploits um, and malware. And so the availability of high-level custom code, uh, especially malware-related, isn't necessarily good enough evidence anymore for attribution. And how often do you see this sort of thing? Is is this kind of uh, this kind of code reuse, this um, false flag sort of thing? Is this becoming a, a standard feature of these things that we suspect may come from state actors? Uh, it's definitely ramped up. I would pontificate that previously it was reduced to state actors actually doing it hmm. um, in very very rare circumstances. But it has now become more popular, especially in more publicized malware especially Olympic Destroyer is a good example of that. And fortunately for us at Recorded Future, we have Jags, who is the, the false flag king of, <laughs> of you know, finding, finding weird code overlap and determining if it was intentionally put in there or if it was something that was stolen merely for its use or if it was put in there to attempt to confuse investigators and forensics experts into who actually wrote it. Can you take us through this sort of two-pronged campaign? How there were two parts. I think there was a reconnaissance phase and then an actual destructive phase. Is that accurate? Yes. For the the way we broke it down is we believe that the first phase was targeting the IT infrastructure providers of the Olympic Games to sort of get a foothold um, and get guaranteed access into 
the PyeongChang Olympic Network uh, once it was set up and in use during the event. That foothold uh, that we believe occurred around mid-December was then used to grant access and act as an infection vector into the Olympics network itself and then unleash the the destructive malware um, upon those systems. There's no evidence to support that you know a phishing email or a drive-by download or an exploit was used to gain access to the network and finding the hard-coded credentials of the IT provider sort of supports that they were then hit first and then those credentials were used to then open up the Olympics network to the threat actor. And so based on what you saw, how successful was this campaign? I would say it was successful for two reasons. One, it greatly muddied the waters of the responsible party and we've sort of seen the fallout from that. It generated a bunch of concern and finger pointing over who did it in the immediate aftermath. And additionally, it was, from my understanding on the ground, pretty effective in keeping people from getting into some of the events. Hmm. Uh, I don't think that this was a, hey, let's bring down the the entire Olympic Games infrastructure. I think that fortunately that was mitigated by the teams over there. And I'm not sure if that was inside of the scope, but it, it did enough to sort of stir the pot and get people blaming each other. And as soon as that happens, it still insulates the responsible party from real repercussions because there is that that public doubt that then exists. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, how multi-layered this is, where you know, you have the gathering of data, you have the destruction, but then kind of sprinkled all throughout that is the the uncertainty that it causes and it makes you wonder which what was the primary um goal here what was it the destruction was it the gathering of data was it the uncertainty injected into the 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 system in the community right agreed and i think all those things uh the money the waters plays into the hands of the threat actor and the defenders are sort of left wondering did they accomplish their goals did they not and sort of leaves the ambiguity of you know, their actions on objectives, were they necessarily taken and did they find what they were looking for or did they disrupt to a level that they felt was sufficient or did they get fingers pointed at the parties they intentionally stole code from to ruffle further feathers? So not knowing their goals in such a hectic and multi-pronged campaign makes it difficult for the defenders. But I think some of that, at least in the attribution and false flag area, may have been, you know, a collateral benefit to them. Now, obviously, this was targeted on the Olympic Games, which is, um, uh, you know, doesn't happen every day, isn't part of uh, everyone's day-to-day operations. Um, How does an attack like this uh, inform you and the work you do and and your advice to people who are dealing with day-to-day defensive networks? I think that as much as targeted attacks occur, the vectors are always still going to be the same and they're ultimately going to be targeting the people. I think brand awareness for any large organization that, you know, they're a sponsor or they're affiliated with any political or social thing on on either side of it can be affected by by something like this. Uh, We see it in the U.S. all the time with how uh, our political system is uh, taking on new shapes and new forms. And I think that cybersecurity teams need to be aware of what their brand is involved in um, and where their infrastructure is sometimes temporarily deployed. 
to have a better understanding of the threat landscape that they're facing. But I think that teams that are typically tasked with defending their corporate network need to have an understanding of mobile infrastructure and where the brand is internationally and understand that for whatever reason they may get targeted for destructive or disruptive purposes, especially if it's something like a World Cup, an Olympic Games, supporting one political opponent over another and that sort of thing. And I think understanding that and understanding that the wars and the phishing and the intrusion vectors will very rapidly mirror that is important because it's really easy to change the subject line and the text in a phishing email. It's much more difficult to sort of pivot a SOC or an IR team to then be aware of of all those changes and know to, to sort of look for that stuff. I hear people say that um, attribution isn't really important unless you are a nation state or law enforcement, that, you know, um, while it's natural to want to know who did this to me, um, when it comes to actually defending yourself, maybe it's not uh, a top priority or or shouldn't be. be. To be wary of chasing after that information, allowing it to be a distraction. I agree. I think it's very useful to track actors internally in terms of tactics, techniques, and procedures that they commonly use so that you can track them over time and understand typical behaviors of them, both from a proactive monitoring standpoint and also just just for clustering's sake uh, to understand the different threats that are hitting your network. You know, if you have, say, 100 incidents over the course of the year, if you're, you know, a small or medium-sized company, and all of a sudden you're able to cluster them based on use of phishing emails, different use of exploits or tools, you know, that an actor may commonly use, I think it's very useful to then cluster that to understand, okay, this sort of stuff has been most effective against us and we need to step up and monitor X group, Y group, Z group better. But A through A through X hasn't really had a huge effect on us and all have been stopped, you know, at the border router or in the email sandbox. So I think it's useful. I think once you get beyond how they interact with your network, I think it gets a little bit diluted and there may be a gap there of understanding, hey, some people might want us for, you know, our financial records or credit card information. Some people might want us, you know, our um, intellectual property and stuff that may be useful for them. Uh, so I think knowing motives is useful to inform where and how you defend certain things. But I don't think that, you know, chasing down the, the exact guy on the other end of the computer, if you know you're, you're tasked with defending a network, is something that is a good use of resources or time. It's fun for, for researchers to pontificate and, and chase down those things, but it's a little bit of a different ballgame when your tasking is, hey, defend this network. You're going to have all this other work pile up if you need to, if you want to go down this rabbit hole for two days and really try and find, you know, the who done it. But again, it's it's time and resources that not every company has. You know, cybersecurity isn't a a profitable business line unless you're a cybersecurity company. And so it's all stuff that's going to get spent um, and sort of be seen as a black box that isn't really producing anything. And I think that you don't really help your own case if you jump in and say, hey, what have you done the last two days? Oh, I was just trying to track down the guy that you know sent this spam email campaign uh, that, that hit our network. Kind of like um, you know, if I get the flu, uh, it doesn't do me a whole lot of good to try to track down who I got it from because I have the flu and I need to, you know, I need to concentrate <laughs> on getting better. Um, you know, yes, it may be good to protect the rest of my family if I know 
uh, Uncle Bob has the flu. I don't want Uncle Bob visiting, and that's who I likely got it from. But ultimately, my number one priority is you know, getting rest and medicine or whatever else I need to do. The, the fact of the matter is you, I got the flu. That's yeah. a great analogy, and I'm going to start using that for the rest of my life. So <laughs> all right, that's, good. That's well, awesome. there you Thanks go. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. Our thanks to Greg Lesnowich for joining us. You can read the complete report, Targeting of Olympic Games IT Infrastructure Remains Unattributed. That's on the Recorded Future website in the blog section from their Insect group. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.